Hi, it's so good to have this time again with each of you. You may have noticed that there are times when I read from a script and times when I just read with no script, just share and talk with no script. Well, that all depends on sometimes my mood and sometimes um, the topic at hand. I guess when I read from a text, it's a lot more efficient, it's crisper, I get to the point much faster. When I just speak with you like this, um, it gets it stretches a little bit more, but I feel a lot more comfortable just talking. So, well, you, d you discover that along the way that I will move from one style to the other. Today, of course, I'm speaking just casually with you without a script. That doesn't mean that the topic isn't important. In fact, today's topic is so important. Um, I would want you to ponder this passage of Scripture again and again. But so let's start. It's about an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. Let's now turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 to 48. Let's pray. Father, speak your precious word to, you, uh, to us. Because in this word you reveal yourself, your nature to us. And we do want to know you. We want to know who you are and what you are like. We want to know your nature, your temperament, your character. So God, let your Holy Spirit bring the truth of your word into our hearts. Cause our minds to ponder and ponder about what you are saying about yourself. That we may come to a deeper understanding of you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 to 48. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye, and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet one only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Throughout the beginning of the Gospels, we are now at Matthew chapter 5. But this is the first time the introduction where Jesus actually describes God's nature. In the past, it was teaching us more about God, more about how we conduct ourselves. But in this passage, Jesus describes God. First of all, you will notice that when Jesus says, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, uh, but do not do that. But if someone slaps you on the right, turn, them, turn to them the other cheek also. He was not merely making commands, giving commands to us. Rather, what Jesus was saying is that he's describing God's nature. Because 
later on, he says, um, in verse 45, 44 and 45, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Why is it so important that we be children of the Father in heaven? What is this? Well, children reflect their parents. right? That's genes. A human being reflects a parent who is a human being. A puppy reflects a dog. And so the children of God bear the nature of God. And part of the nature of God <clears throat> is that God loves his enemies and wants the best for those who persecute him. And then it says, it continues in verse 45, he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That's exactly it. Jesus is describing God. And Jesus is saying, well, this is what, being, what God is like. Now then, if you are his children, reflect God's nature. But today, I don't want to focus so much on what we are supposed to do. But rather, I want us to spend time after this devotion, if you're doing it in the morning, spend the rest of your time, whenever you have spare time, to ponder what this really means about God. What does it mean that God forgives, that God turns the other cheek? What does that mean when this describes God? So let's try this. I will translate each of these passages and put insert God into it. Okay, we start from verse 38. Let's put God into it. You have heard that it was said of God that he demands eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you that God does not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps him on the right cheek, he turns to them the other cheek also. And if anyone sues Jesus or sues God and takes his clothes, God hands over his coat as well. If anyone forces God to go one mile, <coughs> God goes with them two miles. God gives to the one who asks, and he does not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from him. You have heard that it was said, God loves those who love him and hate his enemies, hates his enemies. But I tell you, God loves his enemies and prays and cares for those who persecute him. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If God were only to love those who love him, how much greater, how is he even greater than anyone else? Are not even the sinners and evil ones doing the same thing? And if God only greets his own people, how is God any different from other gods? Do not even the idols do that? Now, this really scares us because it, it's revolutionary. And yet, it is true. Because for one thing, Jesus doesn't tell us to do something that he doesn't do himself. So when Jesus tells us to love our neighbours, to bless those who persecute us, he does it himself and we see that in his life. But secondly, that Jesus is saying that this is exactly what reflects God's nature. When you do these things, you are the children of God. And so this reading, this second reading that I did, actually 
describes God's nature. But this raises a lot of questions and some of these questions are very troubling. That's why it is important that you spend time to muse and to ponder over what has been read this passage. Because I, I could come up with some questions and you would probably come up with more questions and I don't have all the answers for them. I could suggest some answers. But the first question that troubles me is, if God does not resist the evil person, if someone were to slap me on one cheek and God just says, well, go ahead and slap me too, then where is our protection? How does God protect me? I mean, the traditional way of thinking is that if God loves me, he will whack the evildoer back. If someone bullies me, God will bully back the person. God will just hit that person and punish that person. But if it says now that when someone slaps Jesus on the right cheek, he turns to, to the, uh, the person, the other cheek. If someone robs Jesus, he allows, he gives even more generously. How then do we feel secure in God? How are we protected by God? Well, the other way of looking at it, first of all, is that if Jesus were to, um, if God were to give to us our just deserts, then he would have hit me many times. He would probably have killed me as well. And from that, that angle, I thank God that he doesn't give me my just deserts. He does not exercise retribution upon me. But if I were on the other side, if I were a victim, I would, would I feel unprotected, insecure? That's my first question. My second question would be, who are the enemies of God? Or who are the enemies of the church, of Christianity? And then what do we do with these enemies? Well, I really don't have many answers and I would probably need to spend the rest of my life exploring these, answer, uh, these questions. But let me suggest some things. First, the first question. If God does not give retribution to those who hurt his people, then how are they protected? I want us to remember the story of Joseph. Joseph was common shepherd, probably middle class, seeing that his father had some wealth and some sheep. But he was a Hebrew child and the Hebrews then were not the greatest and most powerful nation. Egypt was the empire. How, so how did this simple middle class shepherd boy, probably with not very much education, how did he rise to be the chief minister of the Egyptian empire? Some of us would have thought that it was pure good luck. But Joseph's story wasn't about good luck. First, it was hard luck all the way. He was betrayed by his brothers, sold to slavery. He was then working for an Egyptian nobleman. And we thought that, well, that's the way to progress, go up the ladder. But instead, he was thrown to prison because he rejected the advances of the of that nobleman's wife. And for doing good, he was thrown into, into jail. But it was there that he was moved to be a prisoner of the king, of Pharaoh. And then someone else whom he helped, a steward whom he helped, 
forgot to recommend him to the king, and there again he remained in prison. But God raised him up, and through his interpretation of dreams, the Pharaoh was impressed and then elevated him right to the top. It's an amazing story, but it tells us that this man who had such hard luck because he was betrayed again and again, God elevated him to the top. And so at the end of the story, when Joseph confronted his brothers in Genesis chapter 50, he said to them, you meant evil against me, but God worked it out for good. But that wasn't all, because God didn't just work it out for good of Joseph. He also worked it out for the good of Joseph's brothers, whom we would consider the enemies of God and certainly the enemies of Joseph. You see, God had already planned that Joseph would be a ruler right from the beginning. In Genesis 37, tells us that Joseph had two dreams. The first dream was that there were sheaves of wheat and grain, and all the, she the sheaves of his brothers bowed before his sheath. The second dream was the sun, moon, and the stars all bowed to Joseph. Clearly, God's plan for Joseph was not thwarted. God did not leave Joseph unprotected or insecure. In fact, God projected him, propelled him right up to the top to be a chief minister of Pharaoh of Egypt. And then, God used Joseph to bless his enemies. The brothers who had betrayed him were blessed by Joseph at the end of the day, as were everyone else the land of the Hebrews. It's an amazing story of God's solution to problems. God could have simply killed Joseph's brothers and then stopped them from selling him to the traders who then sold him to the king of Egypt, to the nobleman in Potiphar, the nobleman in Egypt. God could have stopped all that. But God allowed these things to happen so that he could propel Joseph right to the top. Let's think about this for our lives. Let's think of also about Jesus. Jesus too was betrayed by his people. He was condemned by his own religious leaders, the Jews. And then he was crucified, cruelly crucified by the Roman soldiers. So these are all his enemies. Was Jesus left unprotected? Initially, yes, seemingly so. No one could save him. The angels didn't come down to bring him, bring him off the cross. Jesus died a painful death. But the Bible tells us that God raised Jesus from the dead, that every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus would be Lord. And he was elevated right to the top again. But then he now could bless the people who betrayed him, all sinners. And then he opened the door to the Gentiles, among whom were the Romans. God had a solution for both the victim and the offender, the good and the bad. Just because you're a victim and God turns the other cheek doesn't mean that God leaves you unprotected. God has a different way of solving problems. And in His way, He blesses the victim, He blesses the good, 
and then he also blesses the offender and the evil one. This should affect how we think of those who hurt us. Perhaps you go through very difficult times with a boss who's difficult, even with a spouse who may be unfaithful, a spouse who may be hurtful. And you see each of these as our enemies. Take a second look again. God does not destroy your enemies, nor does God allow you to be destroyed by your enemies. Rather, through the work of your enemies, God will elevate you. And then, through you, be a blessing also. One of my hardest experiences was when I was thrown out of prison fellowship. I thought that we were doing very well. But in an act of politics, I was thrown out of the organization and landed in Bakarot. Methodist Church. But God didn't leave me or my wife unprotected. He continued to provide for us and provided a church that would nurture, that would love, that would really tenderly care for us. For three years, I kind of rested, had, had burnout and all that. And I had a good pastor in charge who protected me all the way. And then I became the pastor in charge and God used me to bless that church too. But you see, when when people do evil things to you, it is a test of our trust in Him. But the knowledge that God has His ways of solving problems. And now we come to our second question. Who are the enemies of Christianity or of Christ? It's hard to say who they are, But perhaps we look at who the church consider as the enemies of Christ. The first that I often think about are other religions, other religious communities. Why do I say that? A friend of mine was a very fervent Christian, was actively serving among Muslims. She wasn't going to convert them. She simply had a burden to help them, to give her expertise that she may bless their community. But many church friends condemned her and said that she was doing it wrong, that she shouldn't be helping another religious community, that she should be spending all her resources back in the church, in the Christian community. It's almost like the other religious communities are against Christianity and we should not be supporting them. So I would say that perhaps the church considers many of the other religious communities as not friendly to us, it's against the cause of Christ. The other community that I that brings that my mind goes to right away is the LGBT community. For several years now, and this is the hottest thing, the church has seen the LGBT community as as against Christ and has resisted them, has fought them, has argued against them and left them out of the church. First of all, let me ask whether they're really against Christ. Is homosexuality a sin? Yes. Is watching another person of the opposite sex lustfully a sin? Yes. Is being unfaithful to our vows a sin? Yes. Is being angry or being derisive or disdainful of 
a brother or sister sin? Yes. These were the things that we learned yesterday. That if we were to cause a brother to, if we were to hurt a brother and not make peace, if we were to be angry with a brother to call him a fool or to swear at him, we would be in danger of hell. If we were to look at another woman as men, we look at another woman lustfully, we would be also liable to be thrown in the fires of hell. So we are no different from them. Those in the LGBT community who love Christ, who long to be transformed by Him, they are in the same condition as we. They are sinners and so are we. And we have no right to be angry with them, to call them, to swear at them or to say they deserve hell. Because so do we. But for the grace of God, we are being transformed by God. So what then, even if they were the enemies of Christ, what does Christ do? Christ loves his enemies. He blesses those who curse him. He prays or he wants to give the best to those who persecute his people. Just as much as they hate him, he loves them very much. And that's the nature of God for us as we look at the various communities, as we look at the various people around us. Begin to allow God's word to change our perspective of our enemies and of the enemies of God. And also to change our perspective of what the enemies can do against us. The enemies may devise evil against us. God devises greater blessings for us, even through the evil devices of our enemies. We need to take time to ponder this, that God may give us a new insight, a different way of looking at those who hurt us, a different way of looking at those who persecute us, a different way of looking at those we consider the enemies of Christ. Perhaps now, let us now pray. Father, your word is sometimes so difficult to understand. You describe us in ways that we never thought of. We always thought of you as retributive God, we thought of, we always asked, often asked you, protect us by destroying our enemies. We would say, God, we are your people. Help us and fight our enemies for us, destroy our enemies. But here, Lord, you say, you show us a totally different side of you. That you love your enemies. You bless those who persecute you. You give to all those who ask and those who abuse you. For the one who comes to you and demands of you, you give lovingly. Not because you're a helpless God, but because you're more powerful than we could ever imagine. That through the devices of evil people, you 
propel us, you project us into better places, into situations and positions that we never could imagine. You continue to pour blessings upon us in the presence of our enemies. And then you call us to go back and to bless our enemies. Father, we are indeed amazed by who you are. And it's still so hard to wrap all that truth around our heads, but Lord, speak to us, reveal your truths to us. Day by day, we may begin to understand you a little more. We may feel the pulse of your heart, the beat of your heart. And we may reach out both to our enemies as, though, as well as those we consider your enemies. And we may reach out in love. Help us, Lord, as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, do take time to ponder these truths from the Bible. Have a good day. God bless you.